The sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled, but now I only hear its melancholy, long withdrawing roar. And that long withdrawing roar of the sea of faith has, in a way, stood as a place marker for the retreat of religion, you know, over the last 150 years or more since he wrote those words. And it was almost blindingly obvious when I thought about it, but I hadn't really thought, but yeah, Matthew Arnold's Sea of Faith could could come in again. We could maybe even be seeing that turning of the tide in our generation, because I'd noticed similar things, the sort of, as we said, new atheism sort of growing old, and the, the fact that increasingly I was seeing interesting secular intellectuals taking Christianity seriously again, not necessarily believing themselves, but certainly giving it the time of day, not dismissing it, and, and even opening the door to it, perhaps for other people. Welcome to another episode of Reenchanting, the podcast from Seen and Unseen, where we speak to interesting people about the Christian story that has shaped our world. And we wonder whether, being as postmodern and as post-Christian as it is, it might be re-enchanted by the mystery of it once more. I am Belle Tyndall, and sitting directly next to me is not Justin Briley. I am not Justin Briley. You are not Justin Briley. Definitely Who not. are you? <laughs> I am Graham Tomlin. So I've done many podcasts in the in the past and been a guest on this one, but uh, yes. this is my first time as a presenter alongside you, Belle. Yeah. But I'm not Justin Briley today. No, not quite. But have no fear, Justin Briley is here. And in fact, <laughs> for one episode and one episode only, he's in the hot seat. Well, I, I figured, you know, I might as well use my power as a presenter to take advantage at least one episode of reenchanting exactly. so we've done a swap side. yes so i've sat in yeah. that seat you've sat in this one yeah. many times i'll, would, I'll yeah. see what it's like to get get a taste of my own medicine yeah exactly. grilled by <laughs> yeah. those of us on this side of the table we'll be very kind we'll be as kind as you always are i promise oh, oh good good yeah. thank you thank I'll you speak for yourself here but... <laughs> yeah sorry i will be I exactly yeah I <laughs> um of course to listeners of reenchanting justin you need no introduction but you deserve one so aside from being the co-host of reenchanting you are an all-around broadcasting legend and i swear justin did not write this these are my words uh having hosted many of the most captivating faith conversations of the last 15 years. Justin is a speaker and an author with two books, two brilliant books under his belt. Uh, the first one, Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian, and the brand new book, which we're going to be talking a whole lot about today, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity. Again, so we're going to be chatting to Justin all about the new book, everything else you're up to, because it's a whole lot. With an intro like that, I just feel like I should pull you on board as my PR person or something, Belle. That's absolutely that was, fine. That was tremendous. Oh, I'll make it um, my side hustle. No problem at all. <laughs> and you're doing a lot of uh, social media stuff at the moment as well. Yes, yes. Get, getting and... out there a little bit on social yeah. media. I, I just recently, at the time of recording at least, um, published a, a video that got a lot of response on Twitter. Um, it was it was a slightly kind of um, one of those sort of <clears throat> sketches, you know. Yeah. And I was playing both the Christian and atheist and not not a lot of atheists approved uh put it that way but um it was all <laughs> meant in good humor in i hope but yeah. uh anyway yes provoke so discussion I, which I is a good thing i try mm, wonderful good. so we're going to be chatting about all things atheism faith theology culture but before we delve into any of that our i would be remiss to not turn our signature library inspired question onto you and ask you what you are reading at the moment i've been waiting for months <laughs> to chance. be able to answer this question now myself i hope it just the timing worked out and you've got a really good answer <laughs> yeah. no i have i am reading a couple of great books at the moment actually um one of them the sort of the non-fiction book is uh by andrew claven um and it's called um i think it's called the truth and the beauty and it's he he's got an interesting story himself he's a sort of American um, convert to Christianity mm. from secular Judaism. And he's had a very successful career as a crime sort of novelist and screenwriter. But he had this adult conversion sort of, I think, in his 40s or 50s. And uh, and he's written this book. Uh, his most recent book is sort of looking at the way that the romantic poets, you know, Wordsworth and so on, um, embodied essentially the Christian faith in their yeah. poetry 
and and it then sort of pointing that back to to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and, and all sorts of things. So it's a really interesting book, mm. and I'm learning a lot about the Romantics that I never knew because mm. I'm I'm not nearly as well read as as you are, Bell, in these things. <laughs> but um, as I say every week, um, but uh, the other book is it's just an old classic. It's uh, the Lord of the Rings. I'm I'm oh, kind of going through J.R.R. Tolkien's mm. famous book. Uh, though having said that, I I haven't read it since probably 20 years ago was the last mm. time I went through it properly. How far so, are you into it now? Uh, I'm about a third of the way in. So yeah, okay. sort of through the first. Have you been watching the, the new trilogy. video version? Well, I've heard mixed reviews. I, I, I watched the first few episodes and to be honest, it wasn't grabbing me that much. Mm. And then all the purists started saying, this is terrible. Tolkien would have been rolling in his grave. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't get involved in those debates, but mm. Um, mm. I'm, I, I like I, I like the book, so you know. Very good. Mm, nothing yeah. ever compares to the book ever. We should stop expecting no. it to, I think, and That's then we'll the, all be happy. The problem is, you see, we were sort of doing a uh, sort of bit of going through Harry Potter in the summer holidays with the kids, you know, mm. some audiobook and while we were travelling. And the problem is, I do have all the characters from the films in my head now. Whenever, yeah. They, yeah. whenever yeah. I think of them, so it does, it does, mm. you know, make a difference mm. eventually to how you start thinking about these things. I rode my it? bike past um, Tolkien's old house in Oxford the other day because we live in Oxford and. And uh, his house is just about half a mile down the road from, from ours. And it's just a kind of very ordinary kind of pebble dash house, mm. the sort of back street. <laughs> and you kind of think, this is very strange. This this mm. whole new world was created out of just a very ordinary mm. Mm. Um, place in, in, I mean, maybe, maybe Oxford isn't a very ordinary place, but you no, know, it just quite. felt very kind of down to earth. Well, and you, the, then these you the work of the imagination or, coming out of something. The mythology almost grows real. around the people who yeah. created these stories, yeah. don't they? And people sort of imagine that they're these towering yeah. intellects yeah. with these sublime personal exactly. lives. In fact, they're quite ordinary a lot of the yeah. time. He it's was just a, they had extraordinary ideas. wandering around in yeah. his tweed yeah. jacket down to lecture in the yeah. university and wandering, wandering home again for tea with his wife, I suppose. So, yeah. You're bursting a lot of bubbles right now, you <laughs> Sorry I like that. to picture that he lives in a house with a round door yeah, and a grass roof. Doesn't have a round door, I can, I can guarantee that. Mm. It's, got a, it's got a round plaque on the front. Oh, that'll do. Well, that, yeah. 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 yeah, that's good. There you go. Yeah, good. So um, uh, we wanted to ask you one or two things about really how you got into this in the first place, mm. Justin, because I guess a lot of people will have um, they'll listened to you on Unbelievable. They'll maybe have followed many of the conversations that are referred to in the book that you've had. And you, you've got a real gift of being able to facilitate good conversations between people who come at things with very different angles, for atheists, people of faith. And so on. And um, I guess what intrigues me is what what got you into that in the first place. What interested you in that particular mode of communication, that role of being a, a sort of mediator between different mm. um, people, and uh, and so on. What what, what led to the the, the getting into the conversations in the first place? Well, I'd, I'd sort of begun working in broadcasting and sort of cut my teeth in radio journalism and hosting and that kind of thing. Um, and I was working. And, you know, has spent most of my adult working life working for a Christian radio station in London, Premier Christian Radio. And at that point, they were doing a great job of creating Christian sort of programming for Christians to kind of resource them. But there was nothing really on there that, that demonstrated what it would look like to engage with a non-Christian. And so that was really the purpose of the show. I, and I just felt like, actually, that's probably where most people spend a lot of their time, actually. You don't have the luxury of living in a Christian bubble as you do perhaps in some parts of the USA or wherever in the UK. So, so that was the idea was really kind of could we, could we create a show where we could bring people into conversation? And yeah, in a sense, I wanted to have an evangelistic edge at least in, in helping people to sort of think about how they would answer objections to faith and share that. Um, what I didn't anticipate, I suppose, was that when it became a podcast, this sort of show that brought Christians and non-Christians together, uh, that a lot of non-Christians would also start listening. Uh, and that was the unique thing about the mm. show eventually, that it, it actually ended up having quite a diverse audience of both Christians and atheists, agnostics, and people of other worldviews, because both sides were being brought on. And and so that, it kind of evolved almost, you know, without me having any clear idea at the beginning of, of what it would become. And and it was just an absolute privilege. Uh, I only recently stepped back from hosting the show, but it, it was a wonderful sort of 17 and a half years of hosting these conversations. Yeah. And even before that, did you have a background in reading, studying theology or the Bible? No, or any of that no, kind of honestly thing? not. I mean, I, I sort of walked into radio more or less straight out of university or after a brief gap year after my wife and I got married. And, and so in that sense, I was very new to everything. Um, I'd read politics, philosophy and economics, 
but not theology. I, I effectively did theology by proxy doing this yeah. show, yeah. sort of thing, yeah. and coming yeah. to grips with all the different forms of theology that exist out there, because it was just as much Christians coming together for dialogue as it and was. Did, and did your faith begin through encountering this kind of material itself, or was it a different route into Christian faith for you? No, for me, probably the first sort of real moment was was quite an experiential one. I, I come from sort of quite a charismatic evangelical church background originally, and that was the way in which it, I kind of stepped into faith. But I think it was pretty soon after that, as I went to university especially, that I started to be challenged by the questions mm. that people naturally ask. And and that was when I started to dig into, you know, C.S. Lewis and people like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'll ask you a little bit more about the experiential side yeah. in a moment. But um, but I guess a, another question um, leading on from what we've been talking about is that, I mean, you've had a lot of different conversations and a lot of them are uh, referred to in, in the book. Um, and I think at one point in the book, you, you refer to your favorite one, which was a debate between Tom Holland and A.C. Grayling. Yes, and uh, one of my favourites. I mean, it is a bit like asking me to choose between my children, you yeah, know, what, yeah. the favourite yeah. debate, but yeah. well, they're also I, I, different. I remember, I remember listening to that one. I was going on a walk, you know, quite near our house. I think it was during COVID, I think it was. And I remember listening to it and it got quite feisty. It got yes. quite sort of, you know, and I remember Tom Holland getting really quite sort of energised by it. And Grayling, it was quite <laughs> um, real cut and thrust. I mean, what, what was it about that conversation that made it one of the, best ones for you i mean partly it was because it it was a little bit different i suppose because actually you couldn't necessarily put tom holland in the christian box whereas normally there was a christian non-christian mm. kind of dynamic going on these these were simply two academics really having a discussion um in quite objective terms about history about, about history how you interpret it. Yeah, yeah and how you interpret it exactly yeah. tom holland had just published you know his the book that has been referred to many times on this show uh, dominion uh, all about the way in which the christian revolution really shaped the moral instincts of the west you should stop paying us i, I, I really i mean yeah. I, we could be the pr yeah. people for tom <laughs> yeah, could we? Yeah. anyway um and and it happened that A.C. Grayling, well-known atheist philosopher, had also published something of a magnum opus in, of his own a sort of history of uh, philosophy. And I just noticed when I started reading A.C. Grayling's book that the, in the very first pages, he basically, you know, tore a new one off Christianity. He basically said uh, this, this was a terrible blight on the progress of philosophy because all of those early Christians rampaged through Alexandria and destroyed the library. And, you know, how much more wonderful material will we have from the ancient Greeks if, if they hadn't done that? Anyway, I'd, I sort of sent that to Tom Holland and said, what do you think of this, Tom? And he wrote back an email that I won't repeat the words of. But basically, I thought, well, this could be fun if we got them together. Mm. And miraculously, A.C. Grayling said yes as well. So it was fun. It was a kind of guilty pleasure, if I'm honest, because the first 20 or 30 minutes of that conversation are just sort of, they're just gold in terms of this back and forth between yeah. Tom Holland you getting didn't, didn't increasingly fresh, sort of just get them, annoyed with yeah. A.C. Grayling and his his take on history. So, but it was ultimately a great conversation and that's, that's mm. the best kind. That's why I enjoyed it so much. You're very good at staying neutral. But there, like, there was delight in your eyes in that conversation. I think, <laughs> even though no one could ever, ever accuse you of having partiality. Well, when, <laughs> when, tinkle. when, I mean, I'm, I'm always up for the kind of calm, rational, sure. you know, fruitful debates. But there's yeah. nothing wrong with a bit of drama as no, well. And that no. was definitely one of the ones where it got sparky. Mm. And I was just thinking, I was just thinking, oh. That'll be great for YouTube. That moment. I mean, I I hate to say it, but yeah. it was like, oh, this is they're gonna love this. This is gonna work. So so uh, it was, and it became a very very popular sort of video and, yeah. and podcast. So yeah. In an earlier episode of this podcast, we had the wonderful Frank Skinner on, and and he said we asked him about David Baddiel's book, and he you know said, and I haven't read it. I'm not going to. And then he said, I'm not interested in talking to atheists. I've realised that people with and without faith speak inherently different languages. What's mm. the point? I'm assuming you don't agree with that. I, I see where he's coming from mm. because, uh, yes, there, there are going to be uh, kind of sometimes it feels like we're passing like ships in the night because we are speaking different languages. We're just coming from such different worldviews. It's hard to make them sort of meet in a sense. I, I would say, though, that that most people I meet are, are usually a bit of a mixture of head and heart. Mm. And to that extent, there are going to be people for whom they're, journey to faith is going to involve intellectual questions and there's no harm in having those kinds of discussions and debates even that that may help to you know provide some answers take them down that road so i know plenty of people for whom that has been a significant factor in their journey towards faith um i, I agree though 
other times it can feel like you're beating a dead horse if you're just trying to persuade someone through purely intellectual arguments and that kind of thing. Sure. It, it it can feel like you're talking a different language. And I think you just need to know when is the right time to 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 be using that kind of approach and when not. And hmm. but but by and large, I, I don't know. I, I feel like as the new atheism sort of sort of era has passed a little bit, there, there's been a bit more of an opening up towards the idea of different ways of knowing things other than a purely kind of scientific materialist approach to things. So I think that that even even the, the quality of the conversations has got a bit better sometimes than, than maybe it was 10, 15 years ago. Well, have you drawn any conclusions on them? I mean, you, you talk to a lot of people who, are, who have a Christian faith, those who don't, who are atheists or agnostics or whatever. And um, I guess one of those intriguing questions as to what, what makes someone a Christian or not, what makes you believe or not believe. Um, and what you know, one answer would be, well, it's all about rationality and logic. And you know, the sometimes sort of rationalist atheists will say, well, you know, those who really think hard about it will end up being atheists. And you know, if people of faith or people who haven't really thought about it very deeply, I guess we would probably just disagree with that analysis. But um, but I, I guess that question of what what is it that makes someone um, a Christian or, or or a believer or an unbeliever? I mean, you were talking about how mm. you came to faith through a. Mm more experiential yeah. route. And mm. I mean, someone like Michael Buckley, who, um, the philosopher who wrote a book at the origins of modern atheism, one of the great sort of, you know, analyses of where mm. atheism came mm. from historically kind of argues much the same, really. At the end of yeah. the day, it's, it's pr primarily religious experience that brings people to faith rather than argumentation. But do, have you discerned any patterns as to what I, makes I, people I, believe or not believe? I think there is always, almost always a sort of experiential element to it. Um, I couldn't say always whether that proceeds or comes after a sort of an intellectual journey. Now, for me, the intellectual journey did sort of come after, and but I, I'm I'm not might not have been able to stay a Christian if I hadn't had the intellectual journey in a sense because that that made sense of a much bigger set of kind of issues for me than just this this one moment you know that I had in my late teens. Uh, for other people, I've certainly seen the intellectual journey proceed some kind yeah. of defining mm. spiritual experience that that seemed they seemed to need to kind of make that final step um so i, I can think of a friend of mine guillaume bignon who's a a french uh, former atheist who sort of was determined to prove at his at the time american christian girlfriend wrong about religion uh, ended up having you know a lot of conversations with uh, a pastor about this and went on this big intellectual journey but it was a kind of specific moment where he kind of got basically convicted of what you know his, his things that were wrong in his life that kind of was the the thing that pushed him across the edge if you like so so i, I quite often feel like it's it it's you know happening at that level in that sense and it's rare very rarely just one or the other in mo most yeah. people's lives yeah which is not surprising when you think actually the heart of christian faith is not primarily an intellectual construct but it is an encounter with with god it's yes it's, it's yeah. more than just it's you know it's a, you have you have to sort of think about that and analyze it make sense of it but at its heart it is an encounter with a person yeah absolutely it's not surprising that there's always going to be that experiential element to it rather than purely and, and in the area game. where i've sort of worked most of my life you know apologetics so defense of the christian faith one thing i have come to appreciate i think is that often when it's best employed as a sort of way of helping people to approach christian faith uh, it's it's more for removing barriers but the person still has to want what's on offer at the end of the road. You can't force someone to walk down that road if they don't want what's on offer at the end. So there's a, that sort of sense of the personal element has to come into it. It's not purely objective facts sure. and logic. Yeah. You know? yeah. And um, Justin, what, I think your first book was called um, was it Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, Talking with I'm, atheists still I'm Still a Christian. Yeah. Um, I mean, as so you look back on those conversations, the conversations in the, the new book, um, was there ever one of those conversations that made you think, hmm, maybe they've got a point here? Oh, yeah. Shook your faith Plenty. in some way. I mean, I still, I still encounter wonder. people who, who sort of give me pause for thought. It's not like I've got this all worked out by any stretch. I guess, I mean, one, one example that comes to mind from several years ago was um, Bart Ehrman, well-known New Testament Bible critic mm. who sort of himself sort of lost his faith um, for various reasons. But he, he, he wrote a best-selling sort of popular level book called Misquoting Jesus, essentially questioning the veracity of the New Testament documents and whether they've been reliably transmitted over the years and so on. And when I read that book, I was quite shaken. I, I think this was very early on, really, in me really understanding how the Bible came together. Um, and, and that was, you know, I definitely sort of gave me pause for thought. And 
but then I brought on a, a great scholar opposite him, um, Peter J. Williams from uh, Tyndale House in Cambridge, and they had a, a brilliant back and forth. And I always tend to find you there's always a counter argument. There's always something on the other side. And it what does happen is that usually you're probably fairly naive notions of some concepts have to be, you know, deconstructed a bit. But usually I, I found a way of reconstructing them and actually coming out with something more nuanced, deeper, stronger in the end. Mm. Talking about your new book, which we very handily have in front of us, mm. very aesthetically pleasing new book, very by good. the way. Wow, well, thank yep. you very yeah. much. Yep. Um, the Surprising uh, Rebirth of Belief in God. You start it by just outlining new atheism mm. and just for anyone who's been living under a rock, <laughs> Or for anyone who I realised that new atheism peaked when I was still watching like CBBS. Well, exactly, and and I've realised this as well. Is we <laughs> often talk as though well, everyone knows what new atheism is, right? But actually, there are lots of people who were simply born after it kind of happened. Yeah, yeah. it's more of a historical artifact. Absolutely. Yeah. So I definitely wasn't aware of it at its height. So could you just for anyone like that, could you just briefly yes explain what well, you mean well, by Graham new atheism? and I are definitely old enough to remember it I when it was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was it was essentially something that that really exploded into public consciousness i think in the mid 2000s mm. partly in response to 911 um right. and it involved certain well-known intellectual figures um people like richard dawkins the oxford biologist sam harris who was a sort of neuroscientist and public intellectual daniel dennett uh, a well-known philosopher mm. uh, christopher hitchens uh, you know who's obviously passed away since but these were the so-called four horsemen of the new atheism okay. was, was what they were called. And they each had their own sort of best-selling book against God, against religion. Obviously, the best, best known of the bunch, Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. And, and this really, for whatever reason, just happened to land at the right time to catalyze a sort of very anti-religious form of atheism, yeah. uh, very public, um, not afraid to sort of be involved in media. The internet was blossoming at the time. And so I think it allowed lots of like-minded people to come together in a new way and 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 feel like they were able to to band together and and there was also just especially in the usa i think a certain kind of um fear around uh, religious fundamentalism and that kind of mm -hmm. thing there were debates around intelligent design and creationism in schools um some people didn't like the fact george w bush was an evangelical christian and so on so i think all of this coalesced into this sort of movement called mm -hmm. the new atheism that was responding and pushing against religion and, and basically saying, you know, we need to, the sooner we're rid of it, the better. It's not only false, it's dangerous. Mm. And that was kind of the, you know, at the center of it. And it, yeah, it was a, a big phenomenon for a while. They even had, I'm sure you remember the atheist bus campaign here in the UK where we had London buses just probably down on the street there, um, rolling by emblazoned with the word says, probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So that's probably the closest that atheism has ever come to a sort of advertising campaign in the UK. Cool. Yeah. Ironically, quite evangelical of them. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was the ironic thing is if they were hoping to sort of get people to stop thinking about God, it was the yeah. perfect way to make them start <laughs> thinking about God. Great point. And it was interesting because I was thinking about what, what made it new because atheism has been around for quite for many, many years. Yes. And you, know, you won't get to debate where it, where it began and so on. But, but um but I, and before that, and I, I can remember, you know, writing a book back in the early 2000s um, where the, the main kind of context was was kind of postmodernism. It was mm. basically the idea that there are many different versions of many different stories of which Christian faith is one that has been privileged, but now we put it to one side because we have to get to listen to all these different voices and relativization of truth, that truth doesn't really kind of mm. have any purchase any longer. That was the primary um, kind of context in which Christian faith or any religious faith was being expressed. Mm. Um, and I can remember revising the same book for, for a, another edition 10 years later after 9-11, after the new atheism, and suddenly realized actually that the context is now very different. Not only do you have this sort of postmodern relativism, you also have this very dogmatic kind of rationalist, you know, there is a truth. Yeah. There, yeah. Is, a, there is one real truth, and the truth yeah. is that there is no God. Yes. Which had come from And, and I think that was Dawkins. probably a little bit was the – the change in the tone was that there was a truth claim at yeah. the center of it. Yeah. And and there was this real concern that actually religion was really bad for us and therefore yeah. we needed to know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yeah. There was this almost evangelistic edge as well yeah. to it. It, it you know, Dawkins stated quite clearly actually at the start of his book that he hopes this will stop 
people from yeah. being religious anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was this. It was a kind of almost quasi-religious yeah. uh, evangelistic fervor to this to this movement, and mm. I think that's probably what was so new about it. Yeah. It was just the fervor, the dogmatism yeah. that seemed to, to yeah. mark it. It was a kind of renewal of yeah. the rationalist project. Yeah, it, the it, absolutely. Perhaps in a way that yeah. had faltered a little bit. Yeah, in the postmodern years and. Um, but I, I, I suppose you know, having having you know, bearing bearing all, all that in mind. I mean, I guess your book is about well, the, the subtitle is why you know why why new atheism grew old, and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. In some ways, you're describing the kind of rise and fall of the new atheism. Mm. Uh, we talked a bit about the rise, why it happened post nine eleven, fears about kind of the damaging um, results of religion in society. Why do you think it began to fade and yeah. why do you think it is no longer the the power that it, yeah. it, it was it's, then? I mean, it's worth saying you will still find new atheist type thinking in yeah. lots of corners of the internet. So it's not like it's disappeared off the scene by any stretch, but it, it just isn't the cultural force it once was. Um, the, the, the leaders of it aren't being invited to write op-ed pieces on that subject, at least for newspapers. And in fact, what you'll notice is that all the leaders of, you know, those four horsemen, well, obviously one of them passed away, Christopher Hitchens, but the other three... They're not out there critiquing religion anymore, interestingly. They've all moved on to other things. And the movement itself is, is largely a shadow of its former self. And I think there were a number of reasons for that. Um, I think generally, I think the public got a bit bored of a slightly shrill, dogmatic kind of mm. approach to these issues. And, and it sort of you know started to, to ignore it a bit more. Um, I think among the public, there was just a more of a sense that actually life is more complex than this. And we... There was there was a real sense, I think, that that it, you couldn't really build a positive ethic for life from simply science and reason. I think people started to realise that the, this toolkit wasn't enough to, to 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 give you. You know, it's all very well to say God is dead and so on, but what do you put in place of God? And I think the the new atheism kind of failed to to deliver on that. And then thirdly, I think it's the movement itself kind of was riddled eventually with all kinds of internal problems. That led to its kind of internal uh, downfall. So, I talk in the book about one particular moment, which I think was was sort of a hinge moment for them. There was a, an atheist conference in Dublin in 2011, and they had a um, female skeptical blogger called Rebecca Watson, who goes online as Skeptic, talking about the fact that she felt the atheist movement was dominated by male white men. The um, the, the fact that there was a lot of misogyny and sexism that she was encountering. Anyway, she then ha sort of has late night drinks with the other conference speakers, goes back to her room about 4 a.m. in the morning. And basically one of the people at the conference propositions her in the elevator on the way up. And she sort of talked about this afterwards on her, her vlog and said, this is the problem, you know, getting, you know, this is exactly what I was pointing out. That might have been the end of it, except that um, Richard Dawkins then, uh, responded extremely sarcastically with a sort of blog post titled Dear Muslima, in which he kind of compared all oh, the terrible things that your American sisters are going through, being asked for coffee in an elevator compared to, you know, the, the trivial things you're having to face of having your hands chopped off for your, you know, non-religion and that kind of thing. And anyway, he just sort of poured petrol mm. on what was already a highly yeah. combustible situation. Mm. And this, I really see as the point where the movement started to fracture into those who wanted to go in a more kind of socially conscious direction where they mm. affirmed certain things like like feminism and LGBT rights and felt that was it wasn't enough just to be atheism. We have to be what they called atheism plus other things. Mm. And others like Dawkins and many others who kind of went in what eventually became the kind of quote unquote anti-woke direction. They felt this was a political ideology sort of overtaking their free thought movement. And and it, so in a, in a sense, I think what killed new atheism in the end was the culture wars, basically, because it mm. split the movement down the centre. And they simply they got to the point where they wouldn't even, some of these architects of the movement wouldn't share a stage with each other. They were so sort of angry and had fallen out with each other so badly. So it was an interesting thing to watch from the sidelines that whole thing mm. as it started to unravel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's I'm, really interesting. Mm. Um, the only atheist book I've ever read is actually David Baddiel's very recent one called The God Desire. And interestingly, he's as critiquing of new atheism, almost. Mm. He's almost as critiquing of new atheism as he is of religion and Christianity. And, um, and his argument is that he desires God 
so much that it alerts him to the fact that it therefore must be fantasy. Mm. So it's a very different argument, a very different atheist argument. And that's where he critiques new atheism. He says they all just pretended they didn't want or need God. Right. And and that's it just didn't work and that's why it fell. Mm. So what would you say to his slightly nuanced, slightly different <laughs> yeah. atheist argument? I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting way of, of looking at it. Um, and I think he's right in the sense that I think the new atheism dismissed that sort of instinct that is there mm. actually, that kind of religious instinct really, and and the God-shaped hole. I think that, mm. that probably David Baddiel is kind of essentially identifying there that exists in most people. Now, obviously he takes that to be something that probably therefore is a, a fantasy, a projection or something because mm. we kind of want it to be true. But I don't know, I, I would just interpret that very differently to David Baddiel in as much as, I, I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it, you know, when he says, you know, um, a child experiences hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. Mm. Um, people feel sexual desire while there is such a thing as sex. And then he says, if I experience in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, mm. the only conclusion is that I was made for another world. So the question is, well, if we do have this innate deep desire for there to be something like God, and we see it across all times and places and cultures being expressed, then maybe there is something that meets it. You know, maybe mm. that's actually evidence that there is something that meets it rather than some evidence that it's just a sort of a, a fantasy that we've invented. I, I would see it almost like the opposite way to the way mm. he conceives it. And what, what do you make of, um, I, I guess one, one theme that kind of emerged in the, maybe the second iteration of the new atheism was a, um, was a kind of recognisement that, well, maybe religion have got a few good things, right? You know, they're, they're quite good at building community, for example, and therefore, you know, atheists need to learn how to do that. And you had the rise of the atheist mm. church, mm. which for a time became mm. quite popular and yeah. was sort of spreading around the world. But I guess as, as Christians know, planting a church is a fairly easy thing. Sustaining it is a longer term thing. Um, what do you make of those kind of atheist attempts to to kind of create community and to, um, to, to, to try and mirror religion in, in that kind of way? And what what happened to that? Did you have any conversations with people about the whole atheist church phenomenon and so on? Yeah, I did. I, I had a number of conversations. Um, so there there was something called the Sunday Assembly, which I think is yeah. still going. Yeah. Um, and that was essentially founded by two stand-up comedians, both of whom were not Christians and sort of but wanted something like church. They recognized the value that that held. And we did a couple of shows, you know, and conversations engaging with that. And uh, Sanderson Jones, one of those people came on to talk about it. And, and I, I had a lot of respect for what they were trying to do because, in a sense, they, weren't, they were trying to take a different tack to the new atheists, actually. They, they, they explicitly didn't make it about, we hate God and, you know, you should stop believing in God in, in the sort of services they held. It was far more about a kind of a positive ethic for like, well, how, how are we going to live together in community? And, what, and, you know, they would have a sort of inspiring TED Talk type thing instead of a sermon. And they would maybe sing a rousing queen, you know, yeah. rendition instead of a hymn. Yeah. And whatever, and maybe have a sort Sing of time. John for, Lennon's imagine over yeah, and over maybe, again. Um, exactly. A meditation instead of prayer or whatever. But um I think it I mean, ironically, I think even even that kind of, you know, as far as I heard, it's kind of experienced its own set of sort of splits as they tried to put the franchise mm. out worldwide, you know, people had different ideas. So it, it suffered from all the same problems that religion actually ends up suffering from, yeah, you know, in yeah. terms of denominations that yeah. split apart and so on. And I, I, I guess I wondered in the end, how how long it could be sustained. I think it, there was a bit of a sort of a buzz around it to start with. But for me, the big difference between like an atheist church and a Christian church is that you're not just gathering around a kind of a set of shared ideals, uh, uh, you know, because you can do that at the golf club. Um, it's, it's a person. It's something bigger than you that hopefully manages to do something miraculous in the process of bringing people who are very different together. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of that. I think it was... Something else didn't describe the church, or at least describe the church in this way. You know, we, we gather around the object of our love, mm. um, and that's why the Christian church over the centuries has been, despite all its tendency to divide and argue, and you know, we do that as much as anyone. But you know, there is at the heart of the Christian faith an object of love, which is this this God who is Father, Son, and mm. Holy Spirit, which somehow people gather around because mm. it's uh, it's 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 He is. You know, God is an object of 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 love, and it draws people. Um, and that's why it's been so successful at building community, and that's maybe why atheism didn't quite wasn't quite able to do that because there's no object of love at the heart of it. As you say, it's a rather 
abstract set of yeah, ideals. So if there's anything, than something it's, which you know, people in, in the humanist philosophy, the human me is at the centre of it, um, and and I think that's that's always difficult. Um, I I, th I think in a sense, to the degree that it channeling my inner Tom Holland here, to the degree that it was successful, it was because it aped essentially Christian virtues and practices. And, and, and that's the problem so often, even in the new atheism, was that they were effectively arguing for Christian concepts that were, you know, I think very much birthed without the Christian the, revolution, but without the story that, yeah, that actually birthed it. Without the you know. pearl of great price that yeah, is at the heart yeah, of it, which yeah. made sense of it all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. But you have a feeling that this particular moment in time is quite an interesting one mm. in that there seems to be somewhat of a turning of the tide, which is beautifully demonstrated on the front of your book. Yes, yeah, so sort um, of incoming wave on the front of the book. An yeah. incoming wave, exactly. So can you talk us through that premise? What is the incoming wave? So the, the, the central metaphor of the book is this idea of a, the sea of faith. And it comes from quite a well-known poem by Matthew Arnold, I think written in 1867 called Dover Beach. And uh, there's this famous stanza in it. In fact, I, I use it in the introduction of the book uh, that says, The sea of faith was once to at the full and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled, but now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar. And that long withdrawing roar of the sea of faith has, in a way, stood as a place marker for the retreat of religion, you know, over the last 150 years or more since he wrote those words. And, and, that's often been used as an analogy for the way in which secularism is simply, you know, sweeping through the West and everything else. But then I had this conversation with Douglas Murray um, a few years ago. Uh, Douglas Murray, as probably many people will know, is a sort of uh, political commentator, mm. certainly sort of uh, more on the right than the left. But he's interesting in as much as he describes himself as a Christian atheist, like many guests who have been on the show, actually, someone who doesn't necessarily believe but can see the value of Christianity in the way it shaped the West doesn't really believe atheism amounted to giving people meaning or purpose that religion and Christianity in particular has done a much better job of that. And he remarked that he was seeing some of his secular intellectual peers actually converting to Christianity as well. And he said, maybe this is a moment when the church has more of an opportunity to speak into a more receptive crowd, because the thing about the sea of faith is that it could come back in again. That's mm. the point of tides. And and it was almost blindingly obvious when I thought about it, but I hadn't really thought, but yeah, Matthew Arnold's Sea of Faith could, could come in again. We could maybe even be seeing that turning of the tide in our generation because I'd noticed similar things, the sort of, as we said, new atheism sort of growing old and the, the fact that increasingly I was seeing interesting secular intellectuals taking Christianity seriously again, not necessarily believing themselves, but certainly giving it the time of day, not dismissing it, and, and even opening the door to it, perhaps for other people. And, and like Douglas Murray, seeing some in interesting examples of people who had actually converted, surprisingly. So I, that was kind of at the, at the center of the book, was this idea that maybe we're seeing that turning of the tide in mm -hmm. that way. Well, that Matthew Arnold's problem was that he didn't stay long enough on the beach. Yes, yeah. if, if he'd he maybe had. waited a few hours, yeah, the tide might, might have, have started it. coming the back The whole metaphor again. would have been very different. <laughs> and, um, I guess the, the, I mean, the other thing that's always struck me about that, that poem is the line, I think, again, you quoted it, um, the sea of faith lay like, um, was once too at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle field. In other words, he assumes this is a global phenomenon, this mm. retreat of faith. Yes. But of course, we know that's far from true, that actually it's really only in Europe and North America that we are seeing religion sort of retreating. And in most parts of the world, actually, it's Yes. Remains, I, I mean, in fact, becoming more I, and more of a, of a powerful I th force. I think we sometimes do have a bit of a, an insular view of this because even though in the West, obviously, we constantly hear the statistics about church decline and the rise of the nuns, if you actually look at the global statistics, atheism is declining as a proportion of the global population. And, and I, you know, just at one level, just because religious people have more children and our secularized Western countries are having less children. And so it's 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 interesting, as you say, this is this is a very specifically Western phenomenon in that sense. When you say you're seeing a resurgence in um, people being open to Christianity, attracted to it even, do you think that it's just quote unquote Christian values? You know, I saw a piece in the Times recently, I forget who wrote it, so I'm a, a huge apologies, but said, you know, we've banished Christianity 
Christian morals. Now, where are we? Mm. You know, and I think Louise Perry says a similar thing. She said it on our podcast in season one. She said she was very nervous about where we are without Christian morals. So is it that that you see people wanting? It's like it's slipping away and people are getting nervous and wanting to pull that tide back in. Or is it, is that being unfair? Is it more of the mystical and the enchanting and the unexplainable that people are kind of more open to? I think there's a real spectrum of Mm. different places where people find themselves. And I think at one end, you probably have got people who are just willing to kind of accept that Christianity might not have been so bad because it might have helped to shape society in certain ways and so on. In fact, you know, interestingly, a number of the new atheists even have changed their tune remarkably around that. Richard Dawkins isn't nearly as disparaging of Christianity as I think he would have been 10 or 15 years ago, partly just because mm. he sees that the culture and some of the battles he's now facing, you know, with some of the things he's saying, he's realizing, oh, maybe Christianity wasn't so bad. Uh, but then you've got sort of interesting sort of, yes, yeah, I mean, obvious examples are people like Jordan Peterson um, and and others who are kind of asking as secular sort of thinkers, well, can we live without something like the Christian story to make sense of life, but still seem to be approaching it as a kind of useful psychological thing, you know, potentially for people to have in their lives or, or yes, uh, it gave a great framework for, you know, human rights and that sort of thing. So there's a kind of a utility approach almost. Mm. And, and kind of, you know, as they, they sort of seem very pro-Christianity, but don't quite seem to be ready to say it's all, you know, I'm all in and, and so on. And then you have got some people, though, who are, I think, quite drawn to the Christian faith in and of itself and find it very attractive just as an appealing aesthetic option. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back to when we had Tom Holland here and, mm. and lots of people have remarked that mm. the very end of that interview when he spoke quite candidly about his own sort of sense of longing mm. almost that mm. Christianity might be true. Mm. I, I think there are people who are, who are in that category as well who both see its value and feel like, wouldn't the world be an amazing place if it was true? Mm. Mm. And you've had people, I suppose, I mean, you talked about Douglas Murray and Jordan Peterson, maybe Tom Holland and others who are drawn to the, of the ethic or the aesthetics or the appeal of Christian faith. Um, I guess you've had others like Paul Kings North and Tom who, who have made the step, come yeah. to a, a very fully orbed Christian faith. And, um, and I guess I, I'm wondering what, what, in your experience and your conversations leads to someone making that extra step into Christian faith. What, what is it that holds people back mm. at the moment from mm. that step, you know, drawing almost to the kind of verges of Christian faith, but reluctant to kind of step into, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Um, it, it's, I wouldn't want to speak for any individual because I'm sure they're all, they've all got different reasons for why they haven't necessarily taken that step. I, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school to say that when I had this conversation with Douglas Murray, he, I did ask him essentially this question, well, what's stopping you, Douglas? And, and he said, well, look, he just basically has some s- critical questions around the Bible, really, and, and whether we can really take it seriously as a historical document, especially regarding Jesus. Now, maybe, you know, I, I was having a conversation funny enough, between him and N.T. Wright. Maybe they need to have a separate conversation you know, about those issues. I don't know whether that would be enough for Douglas Murray. He said at the time, actually, no, this was in a separate conversation. He said, um, I'd need to hear a voice. Um, and I found that an interesting way of putting it because I think for some people, they really do want to something that feels out of this world. Back to the to kind of, experience. That's, yeah, that's so yeah. there is a kind of like, I really need an experience of some kind. Um, and I get the sense that Paul Kingsnorth, who you mentioned, you know, when we spoke to him on this show, he he, I think certainly had been on an intellectual journey, but he's also talked about the fact that it, it was really a set of experiences as well that, that took him to that. So, so it's hard to avoid that. For me, the, the big question inevitably is that to the degree that you will ex- have a spiritual experience is to some extent down to how open you are to the idea yeah. of a spiritual yeah. experience. Yeah. And yeah. I think there are just a lot of guards up against that in our culture because people have been told time and again for obvious reasons that you you could be fooling yourself you know you, you you religion has been taking you in for so long don't just trust you know this funny feeling you get when you walk into a church and yeah so on. and it's, so, not, it's not a new thing isn't it i often think of, sort of someone like iris murdoch who was very drawn to the idea of the good as a sort of transcendent reality out there but could never quite get beyond that to to god mm. as a personal being so you know it's, it's, it isn't a new phenomenon of 
and as you know, I guess that's maybe always been the case that people are drawn to the benefits of Christian faith, but can't quite make that. Final I, I step. think a lot of people come with all the baggage that they probably have from childhood sort of ideas of it or negative associations that come with it. And there's all sorts of things I imagine that probably need to be worked through and some, some you know, before people potentially are kind of open enough to, to do that. I suppose for me, the exciting thing is a way, in a way is that I do feel like at least at the cultural level, we're starting to see a kind of less of a kind of ridiculing and dismissive attitude towards Christianity as a whole. And it's almost like the door is being opened to people at least being able to look at it for the first time and ask serious questions of it. Yeah. In a way that I just didn't sense you could when the new atheism was sort of ruling yeah, the I was going to ask it. I mean, in some ways, your, your thesis is a rather counterintuitive one in that all, all the statistics still seem to suggest yeah. that decline is happening. Recent time survey of clergy in the Church of England suggesting they, the majority field, were no longer a Christian country. There doesn't seem yet to be a kind of upturn in religious practice or any of the indicators of religious faith. And yet you are quite hopefully mm. suggesting that there is a the tide is turning. I mean, how, how do you respond to someone saying, well, look, come on, you're, you're, you're being a bit too optimistic here. All the statistics are still downwards. You know. I'm, I'm an inherent optimist, so I probably am being optimistic. But actually, I suppose... I suppose all I'm really saying, and, and a lot of people, when I put the, the title of the book on social media, a lot of skeptics came back with exactly that point. Oh, come on, come off it. There's, you know, look at the statistics. There is no surprising rebirth of belief in God. But really what I'm, I'm looking at is the fact that I'm seeing something change in the atmosphere. So this is not about, yes, that of course, our pews are continuing to empty. But the question is, could we be seeing the, the, the interesting first fruits of something that could signal that there's a change on the horizon. Hence why I think we're, if the tide is turning, it's only just beginning to turn, or we might be sort of just beginning to get to the point where it could turn. And that for me is an optimistic thesis in that sense, because it could go in different directions. It's no, there's no guarantee that the Christian worldview is the one that will ultimately come rushing back in. But yeah, straws in the wind. And I guess the, the the point of that image is that in occasionally you might suddenly see straws in the wind, and that's a sign of the weather turning. Yes, from um, you know one season to another, and it could be that. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I call me a natural rebel. I <laughs> like the thought that Christianity is about to become the underdog again because historically it thrives as the underdog. Mm, so it could mm. be that actually yeah. this tension is no coincidence. Mm. You know, mm. um, I, I agree, and I, I I think my my concern would be that I don't, whatever the, it looks like in the future, I don't think it's just going to be the same as it always was. Mm. It's just going to kind of go back to some golden era of the Victorian sort of revival or something like that. Because I, for me, I, when I look back historically, there's been lots of occasions when I see the church seeming to go into the doldrums and things going mm. off the rails and, and whatever. But as a Christian, when I look at that history, I, I do see somehow that God and the spirit move and it something gets blown into life and unexpected things happen. You know, mm. you get a Wesley rising up from the Anglican church and suddenly a new movement yeah. developing. You get, you know, the, the various revivals that we've seen. Mm. And I just wonder whether if, if, we be, if you do believe that, that the church is not done for, <laughs> and mm. that maybe this could be the start of the next thing, whatever that is. But it probably won't leave the church looking the same as it is now. And, and that may not be a bad thing. Mm. Um, and, and to that extent, I'm not a good prophet of these things, but I, I just think that the church has a task on its hands now to, to kind of ask, well, are we ready? If there, if there was some kind of incoming tide, would we be ready to actually receive it in our doors? Yeah, and the result of that would not be a return to Christendom as we've known it in the past. Maybe something very different that we can't quite imagine yet, a uh, kind of renewed christian faith or presence within yeah. society probably would look very different now than it had been 100 or 200 it, years ago exactly you, you can't put genies back in bottles to some extent and and there's a, a sense in which i think we're, we're we're constantly finding out what what that might look like all i know is that you know as, as gk chesterton put it you know Christ, christendom has died i think he said a thousand deaths mm. but it's also experienced a rebirth every time because it has a god who knew his way out of the grave. And for me, that's a kind of, that's the optimism that I hold. It's not necessarily that the church is great at doing these things or that, you know, we're mm. in the secular thinkers who are maybe 
thinking about Christianity again, it, it is that I do believe there's a God behind the big sweep of history mm. and that whatever that looks like, whether it's my, my optimistic thesis or something else, you know, the, that God who knows his way out the grave will, will make that happen again. Mm. So if I pose to you our signature question, is this world, can this world be re-enchanted <laughs> by the mystery and wonder of the Christian story, you would say? I would say absolutely it can. Mm. And in so many ways, I see it being re-enchanted increasingly um, as I've looked at lots of different areas of um, history, culture, science, mm. the Bible. I kind of cover all these areas in the book. I, I just see telltale signs that people are kind of moving against that materialist secular story of reality and it is a story mm. it's it's not something you can prove it just is an assumption that has become the background hum and story it's of a our belief age. a set yeah, of beliefs yeah. ironically i suppose and and i do think people are ready to to mm. hear a different story and i see interesting telltale signs in lots of areas that we haven't covered in this conversation where various people are pushing back and coming to mm. quite interestingly christian adjacent christian friendly conclusions and and in the end, I, I just think there's a story that's kind of bubbling away below the surface very often that you, you may be surprised at, at when and where it could come back up to the surface and, and surprise us with its power again. Anyway, thank you for the book, Justin. Very, very good. It's a really good read. It's very well written. And um, it's got some fascinating stories and episodes in it. And um, so, I mean, for anyone watching or listening, I'd recommend getting hold of it. it tells a really interesting story and as it may just be cat catching the beginnings of a cultural mm -hmm. tide that who knows what that will look like in the years to come. I think you officially have recommended reading it. I have. Yes, you, yep. So beautiful. I see on page you, you two. You very kindly endorsed it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long time yes, ago now. Job. I've already said that. <laughs> but you stand yeah. by that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so the book is available, yes. will be by the time this, yeah. this episode, Absolutely. this conversation is released. Um, what else are you up to and where else can people find out more about this sort of thing? Well, a good place to go to find out more about it is, is my website, justinbriley.com, mm -hmm. where you can order the book. You can even get a signed copy. But um, I'm excited because I, I've been working on a podcast documentary series that will sort of complement the release of the book this autumn. And so if you're into your podcasts, um, do go and check that out. It's also called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And it really kind of takes those stories and chapters and interviews and just sort of there's a long form version of them. So again, if you join the newsletter, you'll get all of the details on that, justinbriley.com. How has it been being in the hot seat? Weird, really weird. <laughs> I keep like, feeling like I'm, I'm on the wrong side of the table yeah. here, but it's been also great fun. So you get experience to know what it's like. Yes, Next absolutely. time you're, doing, you're here, you'll I will. understand I'll, a bit I'll, better. I'll be empathetic to yeah, how our guests feel. So thank you, Graham, for being my co-host. Pleasure. And uh, thank you, Justin, for the book and the conversation. Mm. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Reenchanting podcast. Do subscribe to listen back to all our past episodes and help others to discover the show by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also find more videos, articles and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time.